1: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Chang-Rae Lee. Li. Chang-Rae Lee's work is often peopled by characters who don't quite fit in the cultures they find themselves in. they are stories of cultural identity and assimilation, tales of immigrants who both belong and don't belong in two places at once. From his Penn-Hemingway Award-winning debut novel, native speaker to his Pulitzer Prize finalist, The Surrender. To The New Yorker's inclusion of Lee, along with such touchstone writers as David Foster Wallace, Michael Chabon, Edwidge Danticat, and Jeffrey Eugenides as the future of fiction, Lee has long been considered a great American writer. That said, not all great writers are household names. If 2013 could be considered the year of George Saunders, the year he went from an admired, acclaimed writer to a cultural phenomenon, When the New York Times Magazine declared, you wouldn't read a better book all year than his, perhaps 2014 will be the year of Chang-Rae Lee, whose new book, On Such a Full Sea, is being met with similar excitement, so much so that the L.A. Times asked in its review of the book, who is a greater writer today than Chang-Rae Lee? Welcome to Between the Covers, Chang-Rae Lee. Great to be back in Portland. So, like your books, which often explore this cultural dissonance, of immigrants, this belonging and not belonging. Your new book belongs and doesn't belong with the previous books in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways it continues a lot of your thematic concerns, um, but it also is a really staking out new territory in terms of genre and, and form. Do you, do you see it leaning more one way or the other for you? Do you see it more as a continuation or more as a departure? I think
1: um, a continuation in the sense that I'm me and I can't help but have a tendency towards certain things right it's like a a plant towards the sun you know you just can't it just can't help but turn away and and the kinds of things that i've interested i've been interested in before about you mentioned it about an individual self and a context around that self and how that, that context forms that person and influences that person and sometimes defines that person um those issues were maybe put towards the lens of Immigrancy but I think um you know I've I've taken that sort of that same kind of sensitivity and the same kind of interest towards and 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 put an entirely different context um in this book you know a speculative one which I found really fun to write I um, well, I, maybe I should amend that. Really fun to think about. Fun to write is not really <laughs> a notion that, that is natural to me, because uh, sure. the writing's kind of always kind of a pressured, stressful kind of process. But but very fun to think about um, all the ways in which you know a, a radically different and speculative environment could then radically di- and, and 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 very differently affect the people inside of it.
0: So given that this is your first novel, uh, that is an immigrant story that takes place in the future, were there, uh, dystopian literary touchstones that you went to for inspiration? Is that something that you'd frequently read or was it just something you decided to go into purely, um, through the process of imagining?
1: Well, it was, I'd certainly read a lot of the dystopian classics, you know, as we all have as, as school kids, you know, Orwell's work and Huxley's work and, um, but um, so th- those are, I mean, obviously sort of in my constitution somewhere. But I wasn't thinking about um, those books and I wasn't thinking about this book in the terms of the writing of it as, quote unquote, dystopian. Um, I really th- just focused on, the, um, you know, the kinds of things that I always focus on, which is what is this place I'm looking at? And, you know, I kind of feel like I've been writing dystopian fictions all along. It, because you know, if you think about the, role, the figure of the immigrant, say, coming to a place called New York City or you know, Queens and walking around those streets and, and listening, savoring, um, uh, you know, hearing the voices, it's sort of like uh, an alien world. Right. Uh, yeah,
0: I love that quote you you gave in a, in a recent interview where you said um, all immigrant novels are dystopian novels. They're just not dystopias for most of the readers. That's right. That's uh, a great.
1: That's a great way to look at it. I think it really is. It, it and I think that's so true. But this this time, of course, uh, the dystopia is the dystopia for everybody. Um, although, of course, the people inside the story. Don't feel that it's a dystopia. It's just we. It's just for us. You know, our. The, you know, the reader outside. Inside, the people have all too accepted the world as it is.
0: Well, let's set the stage of the world building a little for our listeners. There are three types of societies that are that occur in America of of the novel. So can you tell us a little bit about what are, what these societies are? Yeah. Uh,
1: and this is, I'm not specific about the time period, but it's about 150, 200 years from now, not 1,000 years, not 50. And the society is broken down pretty much into three parts. Um, the part that uh, is sort of the central part of the novel is a place called Beemore, and it's the former Baltimore, you know, which comes with, you know, that's why the name is Beemore. And in BMO, uh it's a production facility uh, in which they raise um, uh, indoor indoor tanks of fishes and vegetables, and these are veg- these are foodstuffs that are meant to be free of contaminants, and they're they're destined for the rich charter class who live in their own uh, gated communities uh, and can afford uh, such such things. So uh, the, so those are sort of two parts of the, of the society. And the charters are, you know, the sort of people that we would consider probably the 1% or the half percent, people with uh, a lot of resources, uh, who have had education, who have good health care, who have everything that they really need. Um, and outside the production facility and the charter villages is uh, where really most everyone else lives, and that's called the open counties. And that's, that's a, a land in which um, you just might think of sort of Appalachian-type uh, environment where there's really no oversight, there's no government to speak of, uh, there are no laws uh, that people follow. And certainly no safety net. And, no, and certainly no safety net. So one of the characters that the hero of the story first meets is a fellow who uh, runs a sort of health clinic, uh, but it turns out, of course, he just used to be a veterinarian.
0: That's really interesting. And another big part of the world building is that a lot of the people in the story are actually from originally from China. And the place that they're from has become so polluted that they become immigrants to the United States and inhabit abandoned cities in the United States. Right. And that's what
1: Be More is. Uh, You know, it it was uh, repurposed. Uh, urban decayed land, pretty much uh, neighborhoods that had been just forlorn and and neglected uh, and abandoned, and so all these people came over from China uh, because their own land was poisoned. Uh, but they had some you know production skills, <clears throat> and of course, America is a place in which these particular kinds of immigrants were not only uh, welcomed but needed. Uh, they need these people to to you know make these make these foodstuffs for the for the elite classes
0: one way that was really interesting to me was when you think about america and its relationship to its own history it almost feels like it's always trying to escape it in a lot of ways say compared to mexico which incorporates its indigenous past Mm -hmm. into the mythos into the flag into the current day narrative america seems to try to move away from that past and similarly it feels to me like the chinese when they move here sort of push out whoever is already there, or at least they become peripheral and, and marginalized. And I was curious if you saw any parallel between the Chinese and the Americans and their relationship to history. Mm.
1: Well, the Chinese, of course, are deeply interested in their own history. They have one of the richest and longest, you know, recorded histories of any civilization. So in that sense, no. But I think when, the, when these settlers come to America, uh, something happens to them, right? I mean, in America our manifest destiny is always about a frontier. It's, a, it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's not good business to look backwards. And I think that's one of the things that that the book uh, has an anxiety about. It has an anxiety about this constant, maybe unsustainable striving that, that has led the society to break down into these three different parts. Um, and that, you know, so that some people are just merely servicers of of those with means uh, and that those with means, um, you know, have all these sort of obsessive neurotic tendencies because they really have nothing else to worry about. Um, So it's a, I think, I think uh, it's a peculiar peculiarly American gift and kind of flaw that we have. Uh, And And
0: so in a sense, these Chinese immigrants are taking on an American quality when they come to these, these emptied cities.
1: Well, yeah. And, and I pick up the stories, Uh, of four or five generations past. So these people are, quote-unquote, more assimilated uh, than just being fresh uh, from China.
0: What's really interesting about that, about the generations past, is even though this novel is a novel that's taking place in the future, it feels like a a past haunted novel. All the people's backstories um, are haunting the current day in so many ways, and it's because everyone is displaced. Everyone is essentially an immigrant and and is... uh, overshadowed by the world that was yes
1: and and overshadowed by the world that is i mean i think all the people even the charters who seem to have everything and especially of course the counties people who have nothing um, each of these each of these groups uh, is highly unsettled in where they are they're they they each have they have different issues um the the issue that's different for the uh what what the B face, even though they have you know kind of a middle class trappings they they have decent enough food and they have um, some health care if even if it is second rate but what they don't have is a certain kind of freedom and i don't just mean political freedom but they have uh they've been sort of, they've accepted and made a bargain um in trading. Uh, a life of safety for a certain kind of suppression of of their destiny. So they know that from the time they're born to the time they die, they'll never leave the walls, and they don't really want to. But there's something soulful that dies in that i think uh and also something about imagination that gets uh that gets diminished and that's one of the things that begins to arise and be more when one of their own leaves the walls uh her her leaving is this audacious act in their view and they can't help but start to start to wonder well why did she leave us and what's this place about now
0: in case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with author Chang-Rae Lee about his latest novel, On Such a Full Sea. Uh, so, Chang-Rae, um, you, you mentioned the the heroine, Fan, and what is really interesting about her, obviously what's unnerving about her in Be More is her choice to depart from from the city. But what's also interesting is you have this grand landscape, you have climate change, you have... Uh, unexplained disease epidemics. You have the eroding safety net and this major upheaval and translocation of, of different peoples. And in some ways, the heroine is... Um, I mean, obviously, her story is is a personal story, but it's, it's intimate and modest, and she's actually physically small, and her concerns in some ways are um, very intimate and modest. It's a, it's a quest for, for love with this backdrop of this big uh, sweeping upheaval. And I'd love it if you'd talk a little bit about that counterbalance and, and how, how you see that functioning in yeah.
1: Yeah, I think, I think normally we, we assume that the hero or heroine will uh, not just be the swashbuckler, but have this whole raft of philosophical um, and maybe political social ideas about what they're doing out in this quest. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, just typical. Uh, but but this particular hero, uh, this particular fan, I just saw her at the start as someone who was outside of all the the, the, the burdens or the concerns that all the peoples that we've mentioned have. You know, as you say, she's very modest. She only re- re- is really just looking for her boyfriend. But the the audacity of her act to put herself in danger... And even though she doesn't really report to us about how she feels about that, is enough to inspire all sorts of kind of responses from the people back home in Beemore. You know, they begin uh, painting sort of handmade, you know, painting murals of, of her and her boyfriend on the walls. They start littering in protest uh, of some, uh, against some kind of suppression, uh, in this, in the community. They begin, some of them even begin shaving their heads in a, in a kind of sol- act of solidarity. Not that she has a shaved head, but so it's, it's really more, she's more almost, um, a mirror, uh, to, to the folks back home in terms of how they're looking out at the world. They, they look at her, they experience this, the, the, all these different dangers, um, and and characters uh and they not only uh they find her you know uh, captivating because of her her bravery uh which is again a bravery just of of again being there rather than saying or, or doing something so brave but they also see how um her her departure has left a void in their lives uh and and thus you know it allows them to begin analyzing that uh, that void for all the ways in which it, it's not satisfactory.
0: Well, I love this quote that you said in an interview around your your last book, The Surrendered. Uh, that war was the first human story, but it is the aftermath of war where we are truly fascinated. You know, so Homer's Odyssey is the journey after the war, and and similarly here we have both fan 's journey after the unnamed uh, upheaval, which we don 't ever really fully know how we got to the the current day circumstance of the book, but we also have the story being told in the aftermath of her leaving so it, it's it 's a very interesting um, mirroring of the enterprise of the surrendered in that sense yeah
1: i i 'm always interested in aftermath because you know when the thing happens, say a crime an act some you know cataclysmic event, I think it 's just overwhelming. you know we We just sort of have to experience it, take it in, and there 's this kind of quiet afterwards, uh, but it 's in that quiet, I think that the most interesting questions arise and the, and that 's the response that we put into it right that we then interpret it and reshape it by our own very own actions and so much of this book is. Not just the following of fans' actions, but in the in the aftermath of, of of this you know kind of condition, but also the the very act of telling her story uh, that the narrator who is a collective narrator um, from B Moore uh, they seem to be suddenly sort of listening to themselves uh, and and refiguring fan and refiguring her adventures. Um, along the lines of maybe what they need and what they want to see.
0: Well, let's have you read a little bit from the book for for our listeners today.
1: This is about Fan's work. She's a diver in the fish tanks, and um, so it's a little description of her. Once submerged, a diver is not easily seen. Given all the fish in the water, naturally as many healthy fish are raised as possible. She is a mere shadow among them trained to do her tasks quickly and unobtrusively. That is why she uses no special breathing apparatus aside from a snorkel, compressed gases causing too much of a disturbance. Fearful fish are not happy fish. The diver is not, quote, one of them, unquote, but is part of the waterscape from the time they are hatchlings, and they see her customary form and the repeated cadence of her movements and the gentle motor of her flippered feet that must come to them like a motherly lullaby, a dream song of refuge, right up to the moment of harvest. The diver is there at harvest, of course, and sees to it that the very last of them finds its way into the chute. And it is only then, for the span of the few hours while the tank is being cleaned and filtered before the next generation of hatchlings is released, that the water is clear of activity, that the diver is alone.
0: You mentioned just before reading that that the narrator is a collective voice, is the first-person plural, the we the we voice. And it's basically the town of Beemore, the middle-class society, uh, telling the story of Fan as it unfolds. Uh, tell us about the choice to... This is a, the other, I, I would say, big departure for you from your previous books, not just that it's in the future, but this voice that you found, which is really distinct. I, I would be curious... Uh, why you chose this voice and and um, and what purpose you feel like it serves narratively. And, yeah, you know.
1: I, you know, obviously the the most instant and easy choice would have just have Van describe her own story, tell us in her own words or thoughts what was going on, or have a third person kind of omniscient following her, you know, from above. But I um, I very quickly felt that this novel was also a novel about community, about the ways in which community functions uh, and self-regulates. And so it seemed very, it seemed really natural once I started using the Wii, uh, even though it sort of terrified me because I, you know, you don't see many examples of the Wii used in in fiction. Um, And I didn't quite know where it would lead me, (laughs) you know, and how long it could sustain itself. But one of the things that began to happen as I used the Wii was, uh, you know, a certain kind of tonality of the fable began to arise, which I quite liked. Uh, and, of course, it's sort of almost an oral tradition, as if we were all sitting around the fire. And also the, what the we does, uh, and it, again, this is non, none of this is planned, but just sort of recognized um, in, you know, during the process, is that when you say the we, you automatically um, involve the reader, because the reader becomes part of the we, whether he or she wants to be or not. And it's this little tension, that uh, frisson of tension about that, that I think is quite interesting as we, as we get into the story. So I, I like that, I like the idea, and, but, the, but ultimately I decided that the we would not be an absolute and consistent voice, that sometimes the we would be unreliable, um, maybe even confused, um, maybe almost emotional and hopeful about the things that we were seeing. Uh, and so I, I let it kind of free float from sometimes omniscience to sometimes you know, intimate psychological kind of expression um, to almost sometimes second-person address of the reader, uh, asking the reader to be part of the story and to, you know, to try to enlist the reader's sympathies. So I, I, I sort of feel like even though it's a we, it's sort of all the, all the points of view. Uh, Well, I
0: think that's what makes this book so unique is, I mean, obviously with the we, one of the things you think of is the Greek chorus, and you think of authority, omniscience, and here with the uncertainty and even anxiety of the we, it really is a a unique way to enter a book, and it mirrors the middle-class anxiety of the town itself. I mean, the town... Has a very small number of people who would graduate to the charters, and then obviously that has people that are expelled to the open counties. But even the people who are within it, there's just, you can tell there's a real suppressed but tangible, palpable anxiety. Oh, yeah, they have a lot to be worried about. You know, healthcare
1: for one, for example. I mean, there's quite a bit in the book about how people, because their healthcare is sort of catastrophic healthcare, but not really a very good one that when they get into trouble, uh, say, with some you know, really serious disease, uh, they can't afford it, and, so, and they know they're not going to afford it. And so lots of people are offing themselves uh, to, you know, to sacrifice themselves so that they won't hurt their families. So there's, you know, th- that's one of the things that they're worried about. They're worried about, of course, um, their livelihood. You know, there's a, a little bit of a boycott of, uh, during the middle of the book, of uh, the fishes and vegetables that they grow because the charters suddenly think, oh, my God, maybe they're poisoned. You know, maybe they'll give us this disease called C that everyone gets. Um, And that causes a a great disturbance in the society. So even though that their society is regulated and their lives are regulated, they're not uh, immune uh, and totally shielded from a lot of, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the concerns that I think, you know, we all have about our our lives today.
0: Well, earlier this year, I read a book by Robert Boswell, his latest, called Tumble Down, and he was attempting to create what he considered a new point of view called unreliable omniscience, and this reminds me of a of another version of the unreliable omniscience and i've I've been thinking a lot about the parallels between the way literature shifts and the way society and philosophy and science shifts and and when you think about the the fall of the collective belief in God and then the decline in the objective and omniscient point of view and narrative the rise of radical subjectivism and consumer capitalism and hyper individuated societies this feels like sort of a grasping out to try to find a way to stitch back together uh, a fabric of of the public commons mm. that would still that would resonate because the pure omniscient i think with the journey we've gone through wouldn't resonate in the same way it would at the time of George Eliot and, no, I don't and Tolstoy, right? It, it can't work
1: anymore because we we can peek behind the curtain, right? Through you know our knowledge of modernity, psychology, postmodernism, exactly. So uh, it just it just seems stiff and kind of false. At the same time, um, you know psychologically, we distrust uh, the individual voice because we know all these things have have, have uh, you know have inhabited and. And, and And comprise that that voice and consciousness so and and just look at the way that our social media works um, and and the ways in which you know we all say on yelp we all we all in you know, a communal voice in, in a certain way, in an amalgam, decide about, upon things um, it's not it 's not perfect in, by any means, but it certainly is fascinating for all the ways in which you know multi manifold voices can become one voice although that voice again is distrusted
0: (laughs) well i wonder then if the unreliable omniscience that maybe is the seed of a new trend like the occupy movement could be in a way to try to feel its way towards you know uh trying to bring back something economically Mm. that's been lost Uh, it's interesting parallel At at this sort of extreme end of what's going on In the world. It really is. I mean, uh,
1: I like the way that you. I didn't know about the Boswell book, um, but it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Is that, uh, you know, we both, it it seems authentic uh, and clear sighted as much as we would accept something authentic and (laughs) clear sighted. Sure. Right? Right. (laughs) And that's the constant tension in our world now. Uh, We want to believe, but it's so hard to. (laughs)
0: <laughs> in case you just tuned in we're talking today to chang rei Lee about his novel on such a full sea. let's talk a little bit about the the title it has two meanings and i'm not going to reveal what one of them is because it happens somewhat far into the book but one of them is included in the epigram um, from shakespeare right. from julius caesar can you can you talk a little bit about how you chose the title and how it relates to this play? Sure. I, I first of all, I had
1: a terrible time finding a title for this novel, and I just happened to be reading Julius Caesar, and which I'd read before a long time ago, and it's one of the great plays uh, of his. And then I came across that it, it, what is a very famous speech by Brutus to Cassius about um, a kind of precarious or dangerous moment, and taking and seizing the opportunity in that moment. Uh, to move forward uh, and to you know to 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 cause change and positive change. Um, he's speaking metaphorically, of course, but um, you know on such a full sea are we now afloat? But but those words, the words themselves, I thought had a wonderful ring to it, as a lot of Shakespeare does. <laughs> he's very reliable as a titlist, um, but um, but also uh, it seemed to capture um, perhaps you know the the figure of fan. Uh, Quite well for me Uh, that she's the only one in this in this precarious and fragile society who, um, you know, who's putting herself in the position, situating herself in such a way that not that she's going to lead anybody, but that she's going to to mark out uh, some kind of path through this wilderness. And that to me was quite inspiring. And also there's a you know, there's a lot of water imagery in the book, uh, and of course, Brutus is speaking metaphorically but but I like the fact that it that she's a diver and, and that she's kind of you know kind of going into the depths of you know the, the deep and profound problems of of this of this new society
0: I was curious if Moby Dick was another influence, not just because of the water and fish themes, but also as another book that deals with. American con- consumerism and capitalism, and the down- obvious downside of, of the monomania of that. But also, you ha- you have a couple characters, Quig and Star, and I wondered if they were Quig <laughs> Quig and Starbuck. Is that? Well, am I reading too far? Well,
1: that? you're not reading all that far too far. I think um, you know. Whenever you have a, a, a Q character in America in an American fiction, I think you have <laughs> to think about Quig Quig. Uh, but but yeah, I mean. And also also the figure of the whale right i mean the whale is it it's uh it's sort of um uh a way that all the characters can write themselves into into the landscape right into the destiny of that story um the whale itself uh, it has of course no consciousness it's the consciousness that and presence that it's given uh is all by those who who look around it and and you know, I don't want to you know try to try to elevate or, or you know make anything grandiose. But Fan is sort of the same character. She's elemental, you know. And there's something about her that's both uh, kind of absent, but you know, absent of a kind of human consciousness in the ways that we normally get human consciousness in a maximal way in a fiction. But also, she's I don't know a kind of canvas that we all want to to write on. At least the people in Be More do, and so. So, I, you know, there was something about that, you know, about her elemental quality that that that, that is probably a little Melv- Melvillian. And,
0: and I know when you were on the New Yorker uh, Fiction Podcast, you chose to read a short story by Don DeLillo. Mm-hmm. Do you see DeLillo in, in this book in any way?
1: Well, you know, there's a, one of my favorite DeLillo books, and a lot of people's favorite DeLillo books, is White Noise. Uh, and that's a book that... Um, I really enjoy. It's about a lot of things: consumerism, again, um, uh, kind of American storytelling uh, of uh, through this deadened, um, deadened language uh, of of uh, commerce. Um, but it's also, you know, it also is filled with this um, kind of um, you know these waves and radiation and airborne toxic event that uh, that is just this kind of. This uh, ominous atmosphere, literally uh, over over the landscape, you know that that we're infected by our society in ways that we just can't quite grasp, and and if we d- could grasp it, would be horrified, hmm. right? And and DeLillo ec- expresses that, and I I always felt that that book was a slightly dystopian novel, even though it's it's comic, of course, and satirical, so it's not realistic, but uh, but it shows a world in which uh, all those all those kind of levers that are being pushed and pulled through language and advertising and all that kind of stuff are exposed so that we can really see it. And once we really see it, uh, we're terrified.
0: You once said that your first three books you felt were more cerebral than the fourth, The Surrendered, and that The Surrendered relied more on something visual, that it relied more on the power of images. And I I was curious how you would fit on such a full C Mm -hmm. in that. Do you feel like it is more visual, also, or, do, or how how does it stand out or or fit in with your books in that regard? You
1: know, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think it's um, the 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 narrator of On Such a Full Sea is just as cerebral um, and self interested as the narrators of those first three books in a different way. And we, because it's a we, it's hard to we don't specify it and, and make it a discrete personality, but. It is a personality um, who, full of all those anxieties we've been talking about. But it's an anxiety that, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a personality that is completely entranced by image and all the things that Fan sees. And Fan's really the, the eyes and ears of the we. You know, that's, that's their reach into the world. Um, and without her, they'd have nothing. You know, they, they couldn't possibly see anything. And they allow her to imagine. And have a freedom of imagination that they could never have before, so it's so I think this book is a little bit of of, of both those kinds of urges uh, and perspectives.
0: And it has that ever evolving mural as a as a plot point yes. in it as well.
1: Yes, yeah, and there's a lot of drawing and tell storytelling. There's a lot of the not arts per se being produced, but the urge for an artistic kind of expression and action. Um, and that 's something that in the book uh, it, for me almost is a political idea. Uh, you know obviously, the society is riven by lots of lots of deep issues and problems but what 's the response i don 't have any political responses inside the book. The only political response is a kind of this artistic urge that that begins to rise up,
0: which is really also an assertion of of a certain type of individuality I think so, yeah, um, and
1: an uh, assertion that that we're only become individuals when we have that creative urge that mm-hmm. so we're not just consumers. We're not just surviving. You know, that's our gift as humans. Um, it's not just about survival. Uh, it's not just about being comfortable. Um, I think in, I think the book positive uh, is worried that, that all those things are now perfectly acceptable definitions of being human. And it says, no, it's not. Uh, and fan is the only thing that really inspires that kind of urge, that other urge for, you know, a, a different kind of creation.
0: Do you have any uh, books of, of the immigrant experience that are touchstones for you or, or you know, fundamental books for you in, uh, in becoming a writer?
1: Uh, well, yeah, a couple. Um, you know, one of them is a book that uh, people don't really know about is by uh, Carlos Bulasan, a Filipino-American writer called America's in the Heart um it 's somewhat a sentimental novel uh but full of kind of really searing scenes about just you know uh injustice and racism uh but 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 his uh, as I think you can tell by the title america's in the heart um he 's so there 's such poignancy of his feeling for this land even as it is is you know mistreating him mm-hmm. um and not seeing him uh and there 's something about that book that uh, I just find deeply emotional and satisfying.
0: And do you have a sense of what your next project's going to be? I,
1: yeah, I don't like to talk about it so much, but I think it, it's also kind of Asia inflected. Uh, I've been traveling through Asia a lot and I really feel as if Asia, uh, and for a while it's been the case, but Asia is really a, um, this dynamic uh, uh, force in in world affairs, uh, a newer one, but, um, but in continuing to... Uh, you know its rise uh, to culturally and politically and economically, um, you know, influence uh, what we know here in the West. And so I'm 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 again probably uh, going to follow some characters, maybe in a in a more traditional picaresque mode. Uh, oh, interesting! And, and have a lot of fun with it.
0: Do you have a sense of point of view or you know, uh, I future do. versus realist? I,
1: I do, and it, it's going to be set now but uh, i think it'll be a little bit um fantastical and magical That's at great. the same time
0: well, it was a pleasure having you on between the covers today chang ray thanks a lot it was great we're talking today with chang ray lee the author of on such a full sea you've been listening to between the covers i'm david namen your host